I'd like to invite you to stand with us as we read from God's Word in honor of the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> We're going to read from uh, Colossians 1, chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. It's uh, page 681 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you don't have a Bible with you and would like to join with us. I think this is probably Todd's favorite passage, so it, it'll be uh, good to hear from God through Todd this morning. So beginning in chapter 1 and verse 13, the scripture says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. God in heaven, we thank you so much for your word, for its clear and concise direction for us. Help us to submit our hearts and minds to it as it can penetrate our hearts through, through its reading, through its impact. And by your spirit, I pray that you would touch our hearts and minds and open up our hearts and minds to your leading this morning through your word and by your spirit, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you were with us last Sunday, you heard a phenomenal sermon by Dr. Yates from Midwestern Theological Seminary, and he preached from Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 17. And Dr. Yates, his sermon was living in the new. Three points to it. Seek Jesus first, go to war, and show Christ. And if you're here, he had us repeat this out loud several times, and that was, Jesus Christ is everything. Let's do it again. Say it with me. Jesus Christ is everything. Powerful sermon. Not only a powerful sermon, but a great reminder of the central purposes for our life here at Glenwood. That is, know Christ, grow in Christ, show Christ, and go with Christ. And what? Yes, yeah, seek Christ first. That means to know Christ, get to know Him, pursue Him, go to war. That's going to war against the sin in our life, taking off the evils and sins and putting on those things which are good works. And grow, grow in Christ. And then show Christ. He stole that right from us. Okay, that was his point. And then if you were to actually read into chapter 4 of that passage, it actually talks about evangelism and going with Christ. What a great reminder. And that is what we're here for, is to know, grow, show, and go in Christ. It's a powerful sermon. But I won't preach Dr. Yates' sermon, although I just did. 
But I do want to go back to Colossians. And as Bill said, this is one of my all-time favorite passages. And we're going to take some time to consider Jesus. Who He is, what He has done, and why He is everything. And why He deserves our everything. You see, we cannot elevate worship or meditate on the glory of Jesus Christ too much. In Colossians, Paul gives us a theologically rich doxology declaring the glory of Christ. It gives us the background and basis for why Christ is glorified. Let's start. We'll start actually looking at this in verse 15. And it starts with, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence, the supremacy, the top spot, the number one place. And so that is the first reason why Jesus Christ is glorified. He's glorified because He is supreme. He is the ultimate. He is preeminent. He is above and beyond everything else. But this this passage is beautiful because it breaks down. Why is He so supreme? What makes Him so unique and so supreme above everything else? Well, we see it starting off in the first phrase. He is the image of the invisible God. God is supreme as the very revelation of the Father. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Jesus is the perfect image, representation, and manifestation of God because He is God. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is the bosom of the Father, He, God, has declared Him. No one has seen God, but to the extent that we see Jesus, we see God. In fact, Jesus says this Himself in John 14. John 14, he says, Philip comes to Jesus and says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. I mean, this is what a wonderful idea that Philip has here. Jesus, if you'll just give us a glimpse of the Father that we could see him in his majesty and glory, that would be enough for us. Then we would be fulfilled and complete, and that way we'd be good to go. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? If you want to know God, seek Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 through 1-3, another powerful doxology, or, or just almost a song of Jesus' supremacy, says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who, talking about Jesus, being the brightness of His glory and express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. Did you get that? He's the, he's the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person. Christ is supreme because He is God. See, Jesus is not a man, not just a good man. He's not just a great teacher and not another prophet. Jesus is not another option for your path to God. Jesus is God. Come to earth as man. Jesus is God. Christ is supreme because He is the revelation of the Father. Christ is also supreme in His relationship to creation. Verse 15 again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him, all things were created. And in case you didn't understand what all things meant, He lists them. All things that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things consist. Jesus is the firstborn over creation. Now, firstborn over creation, when you read that phrase, at first it might be taken as teaching that Jesus was the first person created. That's not what it means. That would ignore the context of the passage. And, and, and the passage is already stating that He is the Creator. You can't, he didn't create Himself. No, what the passage is meaning is that He is fully God. He's eternal and not a created being. While firstborn can mean first child, it's often simply a term which means first in rank or honor. Because in that culture, if you were firstborn, you were the top of the heap in that family. And so it would put him first in rank or honor. When Paul called Christ the firstborn over all creation, he meant that the highest honor belongs to him. Christ is completely supreme in creation. Well, that only makes sense. Because the next phrase tells us that He is the Creator. And when you create something, you get to be in charge of that something. Right? Growing up, did you have blocks or tinker toys or, you know, I'm old. Tinker toys and Lincoln Logs and stuff, you know. But Legos, okay, you got Legos. When you create the Lego thing, whatever it is, who has the right to then destroy it? Brothers? No. Sisters? No. Dogs? They might do it, but they don't have... No, you have the right to then destroy it. And you might. What was more fun with Lincoln Logs and building the, the cabin and then destroying it with the army trucks as they come rumbling through and stuff? That's what you did. Why? Because you were the creator of it. You had control of it. You were over it. You were supreme above it. He's the firstborn over creation because He is the creator of creation. Verse 16, For by Him all things were created. Hebrews 1.10 says, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. John 1 again, verses 2 and 3, He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. By studying the creation, one can gain a glimpse of the power, knowledge, and wisdom of the Creator. The sheer size of the universe is staggering. The sun, for example, has a diameter of 864,000 miles, 100 times that of the Earth's, and can hold 1.3 million planets the size of the Earth inside it. We can't even get our heads around that. The star Betelgeuse 
however, has a diameter of 100 million miles, which is larger than the Earth's orbit around the sun. It takes sunlight traveling at 186,000 miles per second about eight and a half minutes to reach Earth. Yet, that same light would take more than four years to reach the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, some 24 trillion miles away. The galaxy to which our sun belongs, the Milky Way, contains a hundreds of billions of stars. Astronomers estimate there are millions or even billions of galaxies. What they can see leads them to estimate the number of stars in the universe at, math wizards will understand this because I do not, estimate the number of stars at 10 to the 25th power. That's a lot. I think that's what the official word is they use in math textbooks. A lot. That is roughly the number of the grains of sand on all the world's beaches. The universe is vast, beyond. I mean, I read all that, and if you're like me, it just, it's like you, your head starts to grasp a little bit of the distance between here and Florida for vacation, and then you start trying to think through the size of the whole earth, and then the universe, and, and boom. Jesus created it all. Jesus is the firstborn and the creator of creation. But this is what's amazing. Jesus is also the goal for creation. Again, look at verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Some translate the word for as toward, which makes the sense even more dramatic. All things were created by him and toward him. Everything began with him and will end with him. All things sprang forth at his command and all things will return to him at his command. He is the beginning and he is the end, the Alpha and Omega. One day, everything will point to him and give him glory. Romans 11.36 says it beautifully, For of him, Jesus, for of Jesus and through Jesus and to Jesus are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Creation, called into existence for the sake of Christ, exists in the present in order to give him glory. Jesus Christ is firstborn over creation. He's creator over creation. He is the goal of creation. Jesus Christ is also the sustainer in creation. Verse 17 says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. Hebrews 1.3 that we just read, but I'm going to read it this time out of the NIV. It says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The very universe that Christ created is held together by his very words. At the word of Christ, it's obliterated. But by his will and his mercy and his grace, he holds it together. Our life is held together. Our world is held together. Every breath we breathe, every heartbeat we take is grace of God given to us. Because Jesus Christ is the sustainer of all of it. And without Him, it's gone. 
Paul's hymn sings of the supremacy of Christ in creation. He is firstborn and thus has the highest place. He is creator of everything, every cosmic speck, every spirit. He is the goal, and all creation is moving toward him and for him. He is the sustainer. It is Jesus Christ that holds the universe together, and it is Jesus Christ that holds your life together. He is holding the very breath that falls from your mouth right now. Every moment we live is a gift from a loving creator, sustainer, whose mercy and grace, it's beyond us. What a stunning revelation. It is meant to stretch our puny minds and dominate our thinking and change us. When we truly understand what is being said here, it is amazing that we should ever look anywhere else for meaning and purpose in life. He is the creator who holds it all together. He knows how to best fix and order our lives. He put it together. He's ordering it. He's in charge of it. Oh, but our temptation is to replace Jesus. We want to take Jesus down from his place of glory. We want to remove him from his proper role. And we want to trust in ourselves. We want to trust in our family, our friends. We'll trust in books and maybe articles or media personalities. We'll trust in other things for wisdom, we'll call it wisdom, and direction in our life. This is idolatry. There is only one that is a creator and sustainer. There is only one that is our ultimate provider. Christ is supreme because he is the revelation of the Father. Christ is supreme because of his relationship in creation as the creator. And Christ is supreme as the ruler of the church. Now, if you're like me, you just can't jump over this without thinking, man, he just talked about all of creation, this huge thing, and then he throws in church? Little old Glenwood right here? That doesn't seem to connect real well. Well, let's read it. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. I'll tell you what it does. It sure elevates the importance of the church. You see, he talks about all of creation. You get this grand picture of Christ as God, as deity, as creator. And then in he is the head of the church. He, Christ does not take leadership over something that lacks importance. He does not take leadership over things that have little meaning. He took leadership over the church. And why is that? Because the church is the very bride of Christ. We are the ones that Christ was redeemed for. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But the church is elevated because the church is God's plan for expressing and declaring the gospel over all the world. And that plan is so important that he didn't put one of his angels in charge, and he sure didn't just leave it all to man. He said, Jesus, as my son, you will be the head of the church. You will lead the church. You will lead the church on its mission of, of sharing the gospel and conversion and remediation and mercies. 
you will lead this because it's important. It's vital. It's worth us giving our lives to. Jesus is ruler of the church. Christ is sovereign over the church just as he is sovereign over creation. When we became believers, we became part of Christ's body through the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. As a member of his body, we are totally dependent upon the head, Christ, for direction. He is to control the body, us. The reason for Christ's exalted position in the church is that he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Paul's not saying that Jesus was the first person to be raised from the dead. He wasn't. We know that. You can read the Old Testament. Elijah, he did some dead people raising. Pretty amazing stuff in the Old Testament. No, he was saying that he's the most important of all who has been raised from the dead. Because without his resurrection, there could be no resurrection for us. Christ chose to enter his own creation, take on the body of a man, created and sustained by his own power, die, and then undergo resurrection, and so be the firstborn of the dead and first rank in salvation. What should this mean to us? Simply this, that in all things he may have the preeminence. That's what it says. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in all things, that in everything, in all of our lives, everything related to our lives, everything we touch, all that we do, all that we think, all that we say, he should have the preeminence. That in everything he may be first. All things extends to his firstness, to as wide a scope as is conceivable, and then beyond. There is no room for a parliament of religions. Only Christ is preeminent. He must have first place in everything. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is creator. Jesus Christ is everything. Jesus Christ is supreme and above everything, King of kings and Lord of lords, ruler of the universe. However, because of the holiness and perfection of God and our sinfulness, we can never come before him. We can never have a relationship with him. We can never know him. We are separated by our vile sin. But God. But God desiring to have a relationship with us. But God loving us beyond what we can understand love. But God wanting to fellowship with us. Provided the one and only way to be in relationship with him. He provided Jesus Christ. See, we are not sufficient to come to God. But Jesus Christ is sufficient to bring us to him. Yes, Jesus Christ is glorified because he is supreme. But Jesus Christ is also glorified because he is sufficient. Now, when I say sufficient, when the Bible uses that term, it's not really, if you're, you're first here, you're thinking, that may not sound like much. But this isn't sufficient in the context of, hey, how's your new phone working for you? Oh, it's sufficient. When we use it like that, it sounds like it's less than spectacular. 
less than the best, not really satisfied. We'd prefer more. It's average. It's okay. It gets the job done. It's sufficient. No. When considering the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, He is sufficient because He is all that is needed, all that is required, all that we could ever hope for. He is all of our greatest needs fully met. There is no Jesus plus something else. It is Christ alone. To ever add anything to Jesus is to diminish His glory with idolatry. The sufficiency, the sufficiency of Christ is found in two things. Who He is and what He has done. The sufficiency of who Christ is we see in verse 19. It says, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. We hit on this already. It's the idea of Christ's deity. Paul tells us that God the Father found pleasure in having all of His fullness dwell in Jesus, in Christ. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Fullness means that the totality of divine power and attributes are in Christ. Jesus Christ is the very exhaustion of God. We need to look to no one except Jesus for the full revelation of God's character. God's fullness was in Christ, and all we have to do is look at Him. As we see Him in the Gospels and hear Him preached, we can know what God is like. The sufficiency of Christ is found in who He is, but oh, the sufficiency of Christ is found in what He did. Look back up at verse 13, and I found it amazing. Before Paul launches into this doxology, this psalm of praise. And in fact, in reading some, some different books on this passage, many of them think that verses 15 through 18 and possibly 15 through 20 was a song that the early church would actually sing. Like a, a new chorus that would have been written during that time. And they would sing that. And Paul used it in this passage. So before he launches into this doxology of who Jesus is, he first describes what he did. And in verse 13 it says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Then he launches the doxology, and then coming out of the doxology, in verse 20 he says, And by Him, by Jesus, to reconcile all things to Himself. By Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. In the middle, it's all about who Jesus is, but it's bookended with what Jesus has done for us. If it not only pleased God that His fullness should dwell in Jesus, it also pleased God to reconcile all things through Jesus. What does it mean for God to reconcile all things to Himself? You see, because of sin... All of creation, all of us, all men, all women are at war with God and in the service of Satan. Oh, let us never be fooled. There are people out there that do not know God and we would look at their lives and say, man, they're such a good person. But without Jesus, they are an enemy of God serving Satan. 
Ah, oh, but they're such a good person, Todd. They do so many good works. Without Jesus, they are an enemy of God. Romans 5.10 says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. We were enemies in rebellion, in rejection of God. This is not a picture of a sacrifice made for someone where there's mutual love. God does not give us a picture of his love for us, like in love for sinners, like that of a family or a best friend. Because that's, quite frankly, just too easy. I like to think that I would die for my family. I would like to think that there were friends in my life that I would die for. Enemies? Strangers? It's a lot to ask. But God, looking at his very own creation that was in rebellion to him and at war with him, sent his son to die for us. God's love is not conditioned on us first loving him. We can't. We can't turn to God and love Him first. We are dead in our sins. We're enemies of God. The sacrifice of Christ was made for us while we were God's enemies, serving Satan and in rebellion to the very King of all kings. Look at Colossians 1, 13 again. Verse 13 and 14. He has delivered us rescued us, pulled us out of a place of despair. We've been delivered. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Let's understand that. Without Jesus Christ, that's where we're bound. We're bound to Satan, the power of darkness. But Jesus delivered us. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of His Son. Conveyed, transferred us, God, the ultimate general manager, decided that on his team, he wanted us. Not because we bring such great worth. We don't. We're worse than the last kid picked in kickball, when, right? Uh, we'll stick him in the right field. He can't do anything. Maybe we'll, We're worse than that. God didn't want us on his team because he needed us. He wanted on his team because he loved us. And he delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us from Satan's team to his team. Transferred us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his son, of his love. A kingdom. Jesus ruling it, leading it. In whom? In Jesus. We have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We get that reminder in there. We don't want to think that, oh, this was so easy for God. He just picked us up out of the power of darkness and moved us to his team. What a, that was an easy trade. I'm glad he did that. No, there was a cost. Because we had to be redeemed. There was a price to be paid. And it was through the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, it says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Again, the book ending of this passage 
bookended with blood and crucifixion. But that redemption comes with what is the most amazing thing that we have in our life, and that is the forgiveness of sins. Because we sin. We are sinners. We sin today, we'll sin tomorrow, and we get to be forgiven. His blood, the blood of the cross, it is sufficient. The blood of Jesus Christ the works of Christ on the cross, His death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension to be the king over this kingdom that we've been transferred to. It's sufficient. It's enough to bring us back into a love relationship with God. To add anything, to add any person, to add any work, any belief, any ritual, to add any effort of our own, to add anything to Jesus for salvation is to diminish His glory. It is in Christ alone and only in Christ that we have salvation. And every reference to reconciliation before, between God and man in the New Testament, it is God who takes the initiative. Reconciliation to God is an explicitly one-sided process. He does everything. All we have to do is respond. Three ways for us to respond this morning. First, surrender. We can surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior. You may still be an enemy of God. There's no question that this morning, with as good of a crowd, large of a crowd we have here this morning, that there are some of you that are enemies of God, that you're still in rebellion with God. You've never responded to what Jesus did for you by dying on the cross. You've been presented with a picture of Jesus Christ that demands your response. He's not merely a great teacher or philosopher. He is, one of, he is not one of many ways to God. You must choose to accept Jesus Christ as your Creator, Lord, and Savior, and therefore fall down before Him in complete surrender. Or you may reject Him. Continue to live in rebellion to God. But don't be fooled. One day, whether here on earth or at judgment, we will all bow our knees and confess Jesus to be the Lord of lords. We can respond with surrender. Or we can respond with sacrifice. Sacrifice our lives to Jesus. There are many here today that will agree with your mouth that what I have preached today is true. Maybe even said amen. And you would contend that Jesus Christ is an important part of your life. But it is not enough that Jesus Christ is a part of your life. He is to be the very purpose for which we live. We are not to set a place for Jesus in our lives. We are to set our lives before Jesus as our Creator and Lord. And we can respond in worship. We can worship Jesus as our Lord and God. Jesus is supreme above everything. That is not in question. What is in question is our worship. When confronted with the glory of Jesus Christ, how will we respond? 
Will we reject him or worship him? Respond as the disciple Thomas did upon seeing the resurrected Jesus. My Lord and my God. Let's pray. God, we love you. We love you because of what you have done for us. We love you because you first loved us. That you would give Jesus for us. God, we thank you for Jesus in our life. That we need nothing else. That he is sufficient. That he is enough. God, just let us, as we begin this new year in our life, purpose to seek Jesus, to follow him. As Dr. Yates preached last week, God, that we would seek first Jesus, that we would go to war against sin in our life, and that we would show Jesus to those around us. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As an act of worship, I'm going to ask the praise team to come and everyone to stand. And we're going to sing in Christ alone.